if we haven't met before, my name is Tim Cargus, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of speaking this morning. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 16 and go clear to verse 47. And so buckle up. But last week was part one of what we are in right now. We're in a series called Tethered. And so last week was part one of the death of Jesus, the trial. And so if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and catch that online. And so we we talked about last week the historical reasons that we have for Jesus' existence, for the trial that he was a part of. And we also talked about how how our truth paradigm shapes us. Um, similar to some things that Wesley was saying. And so the things that we believe are true, the things that we believe are false, they affect everything about us. And so go back last week and check that out. But today, I want to start by reading this text out loud. Uh, But before I get there, if you remember, at the end of our passage last week, Mark just gives this really short phrase that says, Jesus was scourged. And, And what does that mean? Well, uh, to be scourged was a, a very painful process. And it, it, the goal of scourging was to get a person to within an inch of death, to near collapse. And so they would take these uh, long whips that had these shards of metal on the end of them, and they would repeatedly beat a person on their back and, until they had deep lacerations into the muscle tissue. And the back was the one that was strategically positioned up against the cross. And so every time a person would try to breathe, then these wounds would continue to be opened up and it just created even more intense pain. And so now if you remember, Jesus at this point has not eaten anything since the Last Supper. And so he is is mentally, he is emotionally, he is physically exhausted and he is in a state right now of pre-shock. And then the abuse continues and that's where we pick things up starting in verse 16. So you can follow along with me on the screen or in your Bible if you have one here with you. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in purple and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from this cross. So also the chief priests with scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now let's pause here. This is significant because one of the final humiliations of crucifixion was that the body was left on the cross. And it was left there to rot and to be eaten by animals. And so the person didn't even have control over their body after they died. Pilate had control over their body. He sent them to die, and then he controls them even in death. And so Joseph has to go up and ask for permission to take Jesus off the cross. Let's continue reading. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, Mary Magdalene, And Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where it was laid. Okay, this is a heavy passage. And um, need a lot of prayer, I think, to get through it. So will you join me as I pray? Uh, God, we need you. And we just admit total and utter dependence right now. And God, there is so much in here that is difficult to read, difficult to hear, difficult to think about. So God, I pray through this, the rest of this, Lord, that you'll speak to us, you'll help us to see what you want us to see. Got to pray for the things that you want to rise to the top and everything else to fall away out of this. God, we uh, come to this text with fear and trembling, knowing that it's your very words. And so I pray that you'll help to give us meaning, give us context, give us application today in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, there is so much here, and we're not going to be able to cover everything today. So what I want to do is just look at three things. These are three results of the death of Jesus on the cross. And so these aren't the only three, but these are three. So number one, we're going to look at an improbable victory. Number two, we're going to look at the inaccessible veil. And number three, we're going to look at irreplaceable value. And all of these start with IV, so that's fun. Um, we're talking about the darkest day in history, so a little fun is okay, I think, but just, just a little. So number one is the improbable victory. So if you listen last week when we started off this whole thing, we were trying to decide why this had to happen. So there's this cosmic battle between God and Satan, and we looked at the choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden, and how they disobeyed God, and then they were given consequences for their sin. And so how they disobeyed God and how they were given consequences are recorded there in Genesis. And then we looked at Genesis 3.15, which is God's consequence for the accuser, for the serpent in the story. And this is what Genesis 3.15 says. 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So in the future, all of the humans that follow Eve, which is all of us, all of humanity, will be enemies with this serpent and all of those who follow in this serpent. And so then later on, this serpent becomes known by different names. One of them is Satan. And, and he hates God. He is not powerful enough to attack God or defeat God. And so he settles for attacking and attempting to defeat those whom God loves, his children, the offspring of Eve. And so the snake is a deceiver and he is a liar. And so he tries to win by altering a human's basis for truth. So we looked at three truth foundations last week. And Satan is not simply going to get you to believe a lie. He's not going to come at you with this blatant, obvious lie because he knows that wouldn't work. You wouldn't believe it. So instead, Satan tries to get you to question truth. And in doing so, he plants a lie so that you start to believe this lie as if it was true. And so what Satan is going to effectively do is ruin your life without you even realizing that he's doing it. This is why our basis of truth is so important. So thwarting God's plans by any means necessary to deceive the children of God is Satan's mission. So he's going to try to win against God any way that he can. He's going to lie, cheat, steal, destroy, whatever method is most effective for the moment. So what happened was God created this beautiful paradise that was known as the Garden of Eden, and Satan takes an opportunity right then and there to destroy this paradise. First, he uses this deception with Adam and Eve, but secretly he holds a different weapon, a, a powerful weapon, the weapon of separation. And, and death is a form of separation. And so like a deadly snake, the death of separation, it strikes Adam and Eve, and they believe this deception, and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Satan, he elusively wields this separation and death like a sword, and he cuts between Adam and Eve and God, and between Adam and Eve and the garden, and separates them. And Francis Schaeffer, in his book, Genesis and Time and Space, he talks about at least four ways that death entered the world at this time. So number one, there is a theological death. That is, humans are separated from God. This is a spiritual death. And so Satan, he drives this one home in, in our narrative in Mark 15 today when he schemes to kill the, the, the Son of God and separate humanity from the presence of God. So Jesus is crucified. Number two, there's a psychological death that happens. Humans are separated from within. This is a physical death. And so disease and sickness and psychosis, there's, there's a physical malady inside of us. Humans are separated from within. And Satan drives this one home when he mocks Jesus. Jesus, you can save yourself. You can save others, but you can't save yourself. He is mocking him in that. And so then number three, there's a sociological death, which is humans separated from humans. This is a social death. So divorce, racism, political conflicts, wars. Satan drives this one home as he stirs up this bloodthirsty crowd to kill an innocent man in Jesus. And the last one, four, is ecological death. This is humans that are separated from nature, and so this is the death of paradise. Now, Adam was supposed to be a caretaker of the garden. He was supposed to 
uh, see all of these things grow well. But then the land, after they fall, rebelled, and it fights back. And God says that there's going to be a curse on the land because of sin, and the land is now going to produce thorns. And so Satan drives this one home when those thorns, which are a consequence of sin, are wrapped and shaped into a crown and placed on Jesus' head, driving into his temples. The tree, which is a symbol of life, has been stripped of its beauty, stripped of its leaves, stripped of its fruit, and it's fashioned into the beams of a cross. A torture device has been cut from the symbol of life, an ecological death. And Satan, this snake, this serpent, this deceiver, he continues to try to wield his weapon of separation and death wherever he can. But occasionally there is a seed of the woman who stands up to him. And so we're going to look at an example of that in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And so David in this chapter uh, is an offspring of Eve. He is God's chosen future king of, of Israel. And so he has been anointed by God and filled with the spirit. So this is the perfect target for Satan to thwart God's plan. And he is going to want to kill one of God's chosen ones. So what Satan does is he works through this giant, Goliath of Gath. And just like Satan, Goliath, he causes the Israelites to question. We know our God is mighty, but is he mighty enough to defeat this giant? Goliath, he wields this, this separation and death as a threat. The Israelites are going to become slaves if they lose to him. And the Bible describes his armor and his weapons in detail, which is really fascinating. So there's a, a scholar, Dr. Tim Mackey, he's an expert in ancient Near East languages, and he points out that in the original language, Goliath's armor is said to be made up of scales. And so some of our English translations also record this. We're going to look at one here. And so he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 5, shekels. So, so why do we include this detail here? It seems kind of arbitrary. What biblical animal also wore a coat of scales and is opposed to the people of God and wields separation, death, and accusations? It's the serpent in the garden. Goliath here is connected to this accuser, the evil one, to the snake in the garden. So the detail of the scales is meant to remind us of Genesis 3.15. And so Mackie contends that David versus Goliath is this epic battle that ends up playing out the words of Genesis 3.15 of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And so David represents the offspring in the seed of the woman. Goliath represents the offspring in the seed of the serpent. And so now the serpent feels like it's stacked the deck in this case, right? Like he picked the biggest dude he could find. He's carrying a huge sword. He's got a big spear on his back. He's wearing a coat of scales uh, representing the serpent. All God's people have is this tiny little kid with a slingshot. He looks tiny anyway in comparison to Goliath. It doesn't seem like a fair fight. But then we all know what happens. David hits Goliath with a stone and then he immediately runs over, takes Goliath's sword and he separates Goliath's head from his body. David wins this improbable victory. He thwarts the enemy's plan using the enemy's weapon. 
So don't miss this. David thwarts the enemy's plan using the enemy's weapon. So David cuts off Goliath's head using Goliath's sword. So the very weapon, the very sword that Satan thought he was going to use to destroy the plans of the Lord were used to destroy him. And so Goliath intended to kill David with that sword, but instead David overcomes Goliath and overcomes the weapons of the enemy. And so now this is where it gets interesting is that story connects to our story today with the death of Jesus. And so in 1 Samuel 17, 54, David was carrying around Goliath's head for a while, which is kind of weird. Um, but it says in uh, 17, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in the tent. Now, Jerusalem is not a part of Israel at this point, And so people are kind of wondering why David takes this head to Jerusalem. What, what reason would he have to do that? Because if he goes in the heart of the city, he's going to risk all-out war of this nation against Israel, and he's not king yet, so he wouldn't do that. So why does he take this head to Jerusalem? We don't know what happens to Goliath's head after that. Some think that it's buried right there on a hill in the outskirts of Jerusalem. Now, it's debatable and some disagree, but it's an intriguing detail that this head of Goliath, the head of the giant connected to the snake, is now in Jerusalem. Why is that significant? What was the name of the place where Jesus was crucified? It's the place of the skull, Golgotha. It sounds a little bit like Goliath of Gath. Again, scholars disagree on the name Golgotha. Some think that it's named because of the area right outside there. Looks like a skull. Others think it was due to kind of being a burial place for many skulls. But there are some who think that this verse in 1 Samuel 17, 54 is connected to the name. That Goliath's head ends up, Goliath of Gath, his head ends up there. And so either way, Genesis 3.15, this serpent is going to strike the heel and the offspring of the woman, and the offspring is going to crush Satan's head. So how is this, how is this relevant for us today? Before archaeological evidence proved that the Romans did indeed crucify criminals, some wondered if crucifixion was really used or if it was an invented torture. Surely no civilization would be that inhumane to people, even to criminals, well, archaeologists have excavated graves near Jerusalem, and they found evidence of crucifixion. There is a man named, I'm going to totally butcher this, uh, Yehohanan ben Hagel. That's, I'm sure, not how it's pronounced. Um, they found evidence of crucifixion through his heel. So there is a nail through his heel bone. So his actual heel bone is on the right, and then there's a recreation of what that nail would look like uh, through the heel on the left with the rest of his foot. And so scholars believe that the feet would overlap on the cross and they would drive one nail through the heel bones to intensify the pain of the victims. The serpent will strike the heel. Jesus has a nail driven through his heel. But the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. And so the cross of Jesus is planted on Golgotha, on the place of the skull, driving a cross through the head of the serpent. So if Goliath's head is buried there, Jesus' cross is planted 
and crushing this head of what was a representation of the snake. Even if Goliath's head is not there, Jesus still defeats Satan using the weapon of Satan. Jesus crushes Satan's plan and crushes the head of the serpent by removing the sting of death. So, so Satan is defeated using the death of Jesus. Satan thought that by killing Jesus that he would cut off people's access to Jesus. And here instead, death is a means of people coming to Jesus. There is such a poetic irony in this that Jesus, through his death on the cross, he initiates this new way of life and brings God's children even closer to him, doing the exact opposite of what Satan thought that he would do as he crushes the head of the snake with the cross. And so here's number two. There is an inaccessible veil. So in in that old system, in the old covenant, God had instructed the Israelites on how to build a temple and how all of the, the ways that they are to interact with God are to be regimented. You had to offer sacrifices. You had to clean yourself. And this is all so that you could have an opportunity to get close to God. So the very presence of God exists in this temple, and it's specifically in the Holy of Holies. And so there's a recreation of the temple here. And so the Holy of Holies would have been in that kind of big area in the back of the temple. Uh, But ordinary people couldn't go there. Only the high priest could go on very specific occasions. And so the Holy of Holies is separated by this massive curtain to prevent common folk from getting in. And so this is a, a potential recreation of what that curtain could have been. And this curtain was massive. Now, details are are hard to find and they're debatable, but the curtain was a a hand's breadth. And so it was at least several inches thick. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that if you took two teams of horses and tried to pull this thing apart, it wouldn't come apart. It was that tough. And depending on the source, this curtain is at least 30 feet high. Um, Some think it's double that. Some think it's maybe 60. Either way, this is a massive curtain and a massive veil. And how did Mark say that the veil was torn? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So if it's, if it's torn from the bottom, you might think that someone is messing with it and humans are doing something. But since it's torn from the top, you have to imagine that something other than humans tore the veil. So what does it mean to us today that the veil is torn? The veil is, is effectively and essentially keeping the Holy of Holies inaccessible. And the veil is symbolizing this separation that occurred with Adam and Eve at the beginning. There was a separation when Adam and Eve sinned and they cut off our direct access to God. And so God has to redeem humanity in order to bring us close to him again. So his Holy Spirit is now accessible as this veil is torn. And since God is holy, he can't stand sin, so something else had to take place in order for God. Holy Spirit to be accessible to us because this cross is a picture of how gruesome and ugly sin is. And so God does something that Satan didn't even expect him to do. He establishes a new covenant. So in the old covenant, there was a payment that had to be made for your sin. And then in this new covenant, we're going to take a look at Jeremiah chapter 31, and this is what God says about the new covenant that's going to be made. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So Jesus here is the reason that God can forgive sins and he is the reason that he can remember their sins no more. So instead of constantly sacrificing to remove the stain of sins from our soul, God now provides one sacrifice for all time. And it's him. He is the one who gives himself up, places himself on the altar, and then tears the veil that separated the people from God. Now to do this, what God had to do was to place the sins of every person for all time on Jesus at once. Can you imagine the agony of that moment? So Jesus, last week we talked about how he experienced the pain of abandonment. And, and now he's experienced tremendous physical pain, excruciating emotional pain. He was ruthlessly mocked and experienced the pain of shame. He experienced the pain of misunderstanding and injustice. But if I had to guess, I would say the most excruciating pain that Jesus dealt with was the reason that the veil was torn. And, and that is that he had to absorb the pain of sin of the world. Not only that, but at that moment, Jesus is separated from God. God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, they exist in perfect harmony, in perfect unity in the Trinity. And, and they had experienced that from the beginning. But on the cross, Jesus experiences a separation. He experiences hell. He is separated and forsaken. And it must have been absolutely unbearable because at that moment, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what Jesus does is he willingly absorbs all of our sins, becoming sin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now we've moved from the curse of Adam and Eve to the blessing of the garden by the death of Jesus. Why would God do this for us? Why not just leave us in this cursed state? of Adam and Eve. Because all of us sin, we all deserve to be separated from God. Well, Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's because of his love for us. And that leads us to the final result of the cross, which is number three, irreplaceable value. You are all irreplaceable there is no one in the history of existence who is you. God fearfully and wonderfully made you. He loves the way that he created you. You are precious to him. In fact, you're so valuable that Jesus is willing to deal with every type of pain in human experience just so that you could have access to him. He was willing to become so wretched that he was unrecognizable. He recognizes that you are valuable enough that he is willing to be forsaken for you. And he does all of this and people still look away. They still uh, abandon him. They still mock him. They still put him on trial. 
But there are some who get it, some who understand. And one of those is the centurion at the end of our passage. This centurion led the crucifixion. And so he would have been one of the soldiers. He might have been one of the soldiers who mocked Jesus and beat Jesus. And then at the end, he says this about Jesus. Truly, this man was the son of God. This centurion had irreplaceable value. He was made in the image of God. And even though he made poor choices, he may have made incredibly poor choices. But at the end, he admits there was something wrong about his truth paradigm. And now he sees that Jesus was the son of God. And so his new truth paradigm is based now on the evidence that he has that this is the son of God. And this is a man who has seen people crucified a lot. And so he knows what people usually do. He knows what their death usually looks like. And he recognizes something in Jesus that he didn't recognize in anyone else who had been crucified. There's another man who has a different experience with Christ, and that's a man who is being crucified next to him. There's actually two men crucified next to him. And so we're going to take a look at Luke's biographical account to get the details of that. And so this is a man who repents right there on the cross. Let's look at this. In Luke, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, Jesus could have used the word heaven here. He talks a lot about heaven in the Gospel of Matthew, but instead Jesus uses the word paradise. Why does he do that? That word is used three times in the Bible in English. One of those is in Revelation 2.7, and, and, it's, and it's this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where else have we heard about the tree of life? Clear back in Genesis. So here's the thing. God created the Garden of Eden as a paradise. It was an opportunity for people to live and work and experience the presence of God in this beautiful paradise, but they messed it up. They just had one command to follow, and they couldn't follow it. And so God initiates a plan to restore creation and redeem humanity back to paradise with him. And so this whole collection of 66 books that we have bound together and that we call the Bible starts with paradise lost and it ends with paradise found. And so even the thief on the cross who knew he deserved to die, he gets to experience paradise. He has irreplaceable value in the eyes of God. He has no value anywhere else. He's literally going to die. He has no value on earth. But Jesus takes a moment here. Now, remember, Jesus is exhausted. He has zero energy. No one would blame him if he was just silent in this moment and, and ignores the pleas of the man next to him. But Jesus exerts energy and effort in this moment to tell this man that today he's going to be with him in paradise. He sees this thief as having irreplaceable value. And millions upon millions of people have similarly started a brand new journey. They establish a new reality, a new existence, a new truth paradigm. They are born again and born into the truth that the Son of God became human. He never sinned. He absorbed sin. He died. He was buried. And then he rose again. And Anthony is going to be back, and he's going to talk about that next week. And so to recap, the results that we have of the cross are, number one, Jesus won an improbable victory. Number two, 
Jesus tore an inaccessible veil with his death on the cross. Number three, Jesus gave up his life for those who have irreplaceable value, his children. So I'd love to see each of you next week at our one service at 10 a.m. outside. Again, bring a lawn chair, and we'd love to hear from some of you if there is something that really impacted you during this tethered series that we've been in for a long time. Let's pray. God, thank you for doing what only you could do. You knew that we couldn't redeem ourselves. You had to do it for us. You know that we couldn't offer enough sacrifices to cover our sins. You had to offer one final sacrifice, yourself. And so, Lord, as we contemplate what that means for us, God, I pray for those of us who are who are wrestling this morning. God, I pray for those of us who are feeling skeptical. God, for those of us who are dealing with doubts. God, reach us where we're at. Speak to us in this moment. God, we cry out to you. Show us who you are. God, thank you that we have an opportunity right now to respond in worship and in thanksgiving. And we are so grateful for all you've done in our lives. And all we can do is give you thanks and praise. So as we do that now, God, please be glorified. It's in your name that I pray.